This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. This episode of Popular Mechanics' Most Useful Podcast Ever is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com useful. That's braintreepayments.com useful. The following podcast contains explicit language. Every time I go on vacation, I find myself taking videos to show people back home what I'm seeing. I have no real experience in videography or filmmaking, so these videos usually consist of me turning in a circle while holding up my camera, or worse, just pointing it at something neat looking for a while and then zooming in right before the end. I really don't know why my friends put up with me. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to Todd Strauss-Schulson, who is the director of a scary movie currently in theaters called The Final Girls, which, by the way, is fantastic, and I highly recommend seeing it. Todd was explaining to me an innovative camera technique that he used for one particular scene in the movie, and he explained making cool videos in a way that was so accessible that I thought I'd have him come on the show to explain it to you guys. After that, we'll come to our testing roundtable, where we'll be learning a new way to find out if your meat has spoiled, riding around on a skateboard made out of space materials, and drinking whiskey that's had air bubbles blown into it. Hopefully we won't be doing all of that at the same time. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and this is the most useful podcast ever. Somebody's coming. Hey, do you guys know the way to Camp Bluefinch? Tina. So we're in the movie. Are we doing the podcast right now? We uh, we are. <laughs> we can do whatever you want. I'm just eating a roll, pacing around the airport. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, here I'll do the I'll do the formal. Um, we have here Todd Strauss-Schulson, who is the director of The Final Girls, which is a really fun movie that is currently out in theaters, starring Thaisa Farmiga and uh, I think it's Malin Ackerman. Am I mm-hmm. pronunciation is correct? Malin, uh, is that right? Um, so he's here to talk to us about what he uh, did for this film, which is a pretty unique idea, which was to use a robotic crane um, that's normally used for visual effects to create a scene in the movie that is completely unlike anything that's ever really been done before. Um, he's also going to talk to us a little bit about um, just you know filmmaking in general, and maybe if, maybe you can give us a few tips for uh, what we can how we can make YouTube videos better when we make them on our phones. <laughs> um, so thank you, thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you for joining us, Todd. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. The film is out right now. I have heard that you have not been sleeping. Um, uh, it's all very exciting. Um, the film is out right now. It's in theaters. It's on VOD if you want to watch it that way. I've been deep in a Twitter K-hole, reading everything everyone is writing. My phone has become like a compliment machine. That's so like much better than the, uh, than the alternative, which happens all the time. As well, like a dick pic machine? <laughs> dick coming at my face over and over and over? Uh, is that the opposite of a compliment machine? I think uh, I, was, maybe. I, was, I was thinking about what your experience was like. I don't know. I mean, like, what else... <laughs> What else can phones do? Oh, come on. Uh, on, tw- on Twitter, it could definitely it can get a it can get really rough on Twitter. People can be really mean. Well, in that case, I feel even better because there's like I'm just getting sort of saturated with a lot of love. It's like 95 percent love. It's really it's really overwhelming and it's very wonderful. 
Awesome. Um, so tell me a little bit about the the camera or the rig or what, what you use to make this scene happen. And it's a scene kind of in the middle of the movie where um, the main characters are trying to escape this maniac with a machete um, by using a booby trap. So can you tell me a little bit about um, what you did, what you did with that scene? Yeah, so what you're talking about is there's a scene in the movie called Operation Booby Trap, and I always think it's really exciting in movies as a filmmaker to try to come up with a way to tell you know, the emotion or the narrative or the story in a visual way that uses the medium. And I get just very bored at movies where it just feels like photographs of people standing and talking. That just doesn't feel like what a movie should feel like. And so this is a scene where a bunch of kids set up a booby trap and all it all goes badly. And it's supposed to mimic the feeling of a panic attack, of an anxiety attack, of sort of a bunch of things going wrong all at the same time. Oh, shit. And what's the most exciting way to maybe get that feeling across? So I thought it would be very exciting to sort of trying to do the scene almost in real time, almost in a way where the camera is flying around the room, creating this sort of a vortex of panic um, in these very long, complicated shots. So this whole action scene is made out of almost only four shots, only four cuts in the scene. And, um, and the camera is going to do calisthenics. It's going to kind of do what your mind does when you're in the middle of uh, anxiety. And the way we did it was we, um, we got a motion control camera. So a motion control camera is um, it's a repeatable rig. It's sort of a robot camera, uh, basically. And it's gigantic. If you want to picture it, it almost looks like, you know, the, the arms, the robot arms and car factories mm-hmm. that can put together cars. It's sort of a, a version of that, but you can put a camera on it and it's on track. And we got one of those. We got it to Louisiana. We got it to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Some of God. And we put it in this camp and we did that. And you have to kind of program... You have to, first, you have to conceive of what the camera moves are going to be. All right. And, um, and, then you, and then so you have to sort of come up with the ideas. And what we did, I did it instead of just sort of explaining them, I made a previs. I did these sort of animated pre-visualizations to kind of show what the camera should do and what the actors should do. And I kind of gave those to our producers and our actors and, and the technicians that, that, that control the motion control rig. And how it works on set is... The rig shows up and you can program keyframes. So if you want the camera to start at A and spin, you want the barrel roll across the room and land at B and then whiz over to C and boom down. You know, it's all these moves. You sort of begin to set these keyframes. Um, and it takes about an hour and a half or sometimes two hours to sort of set the key keyframes and then kind of finesse it so it's moving at the right speed and it's turning without stopping and just to make it a very smooth, exciting movement and that's how we did that scene this hyper choreographed thing and once you sort of set the camera the camera can do that move exactly the same every single time what these rigs are generally used for um is like visual effect shots they're usually used for visual effect shots because you know for car commercials or crowd duplication you know so a crowd, we, crowd we duplication is like is like you have some you have some people and you want to make them look like there's a lot of people so if there's like a shot in a football stadium and there's and the cameras moving around and you want the crowd and the stands to be full, but the camera's moving, you know, what you do is you have the camera, you, you repeat the move exactly with a rig like this. They can do the same move multiple times, and each time you do it, you move the people in the yeah. crowd so they can stitch it together so it feels like a bigger crowd. But when the camera's moving, you need to be able to repeat the move exactly, otherwise it's not going to line up. Right. That's kind of why these things exist in the first place, usually for sort of fancy visual effects 
um, a lot of green screen work also. Um, but I don't think that I, I don't really, I've rarely, if ever, seen a rig like this used to tell narrative, mm-hmm. sort of try to replicate a mind state or to just, or to just try to find some, you know, innovative, you know, imagery that I haven't really seen in a movie before. Um, and that's really exciting for me just as a guy that loves movies. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Uh, sounds like a no. Well, they don't really know what this is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. I know, I remember when we talked the last time you mentioned to me that you are kind of a DIY kind of person. Yeah. Well, I certainly, well, yeah, when I was, I mean, I started making movies when I was 13 years old, just alone. And I like holding on to that, um, I like holding on to that, that spirit. You know, even when you're making certain like, bigger stuff, it's nice to sort of feel like it's just you and your friends in your bedroom making it happen. Mm-hmm. I kind of taught myself how to do it. What did you have? How did you get into it? Like the first camera I yeah. had? I mean, when I was, um, I mean, like I begged and begged and pleaded and pleaded to, uh, for a video camera. Um, and when I was, finally, when I was 13, my grandfather, who was an engineer, um, he was a scientist, he oh. was on the team that invented, you know, hazard lights and the, the thing in the bowling alleys that pick up and clean the pins. Wait, that seriously? One. That's so cool. He was on. He was on those teams that figured out how to actually make those things happen. And so, and he was very excited about the tech, the tech part of filmmaking. And so, when I was thirteen for my bar mitzvah, he bought me a camera, and he bought me a gigantic Sylvania over-the-shoulder VHS camera. And I was never without it. And I just every day made a movie, and and I did that for probably seven. Maybe seven years. I did it until I was a senior in, in high school, from 13 to being a senior, every day. And as I got older, every birthday I'd get, you know, a newer camera. I went to SVHS and Mini DV, you know, <laughs> and I moved forward with it and sort of taught myself alone in my house or my neighborhood how to make movies, how to how to just tell a story um, with a camera and. Uh, that's kind of that was what I was like in high school. Lunatic <laughs> with a camera, always. <laughs> um, it must be kind of fun for your old friends now to have all. The, I mean, do you have all the film still? I have all the films still. I have all the films uh, in my closet. I actually maybe some of your listeners want to help me transfer those to digital. <laughs> I'm afraid they're going to get wet and they'll be lost forever. So just tweet at me at Sarah Schulson <laughs> if you want to help me with that. I do have all the films still and my sisters and a lot of them. And, you know, in the beginning when I had this gigantic camera, I didn't know what I was doing. So I was like videotape car rides to the beach or Passover dinner or our cats. Like there was nothing going on. It was just, and they're long. It's just me shooting, shooting, shooting. I didn't totally understand it. 
but it's kind of actually interesting. I've sort of gone back to watch them recently because I was making literally something every day or two um, for seven years. If you kind of watch them in order, even if you fast forward through them, you can see when my brain starts to pick up the language. I remember specifically huh. the moment where I was like, oh, a close-up? Oh, that's... And then I would watch it back and be like, oh, that feels really good. Uh-huh. When it starts off in a big room and then I cut to a shot of someone's hand opening a drawer. Oh, that feels very good. And so it's a slow process of, of learning how to do it. And I didn't have, I mean, now if you're a teenager, it's the fucking greatest because you can edit movies on your phone, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You can edit on your phone. Your computers come loaded with cameras and editing software. and You can color stuff. And it's completely different than it was even 20 years ago. I'm 35 now. Mm-hmm. So in the mid-90s, you know, to get an editing machine was impossible. I had to order like popular magazines. Popular mechanics? <laughs> Maybe, right? And was in the back of popular mechanics, did you sell things? Uh, I like, don't know. Like, I, I think we did. Insects? Yeah. Like, you could get, like, yeah, you get uh, video editing equipment and insects, I think. <laughs> I, should, I should go look up some. <laughs> It was like it was, it was like profoundly cost prohibitive. It was like fifteen thousand dollars. I was like, "What is this?" Mm-hmm. I, was, I had a so so what I so what I had to learn was how to edit the things in order as I was shooting. So I was doing in camera editing. So I'd run around the house and be like, "Okay, the first shot is this guy walks in the house, but then he want to be over his shoulder, but then he want to be back and he's by the door, and that's how the edit's going to go." But I can't do that, so I have to just shoot it like that. I'd run upstairs and I'd run downstairs and I'd run upstairs and run downstairs and just piece together the sequence almost in real time. Uh-huh. And that was a huge pain in the ass. But it actually, in retrospect, looking back, was an incredibly valuable couple of years because it sort of trained my mind to be able to think in sequences like that. It mm-hmm. trained my mind to be an editing machine. And so now when I will shot list or design something or even when I'm shooting it's very helpful to know how it's going to be puzzled all together. I mm-hmm. think a lot because of what I was like when I was 14 or 15. Probably helped you a lot with this scene, actually, because this sounds, sounds like you really had to plan a lot. Well, what's kind of exciting about this scene is that, it, you know, what's exciting about like this booby trap in particular is that, it, in a way, it's being able to visualize all of the crazy movement and where it's going to go, and it's almost like you're doing a sequence, you know, multiple shots in a sequence, but without cutting, mm-hmm. which is not a new idea. I mean, long takes have been around since the 30s or 40s, and Max Ophuls is probably the grandfather of all of these things with like incredibly dynamic, long, wonderful takes, and Hitchcock and Brian De Palma, and everyone sort of, you know, even recently True Detective. I mean, everyone kind of throws their hat in the ring mm-hmm. with these sort of long shots that tell a story. But what I've never really seen before is a camera being quite so athletic, you know? Um, moving around quite so crazily mm-hmm. and doing an action scene like that. And where it's, where it's narrative drive is to sort of create a feeling, right. create a feeling of panic as opposed to just being a very cool idea, you know? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you, I don't know if this, if you'll be able to, to help me, um, but when I... All I, wa- all I want to do is help you. Let me help you. <laughs> How can I help you? Help you help me. Um, I don't, whenever I am making, am making a video on my phone, you know, just something I'm on vacation or whatever, I, I, I don't know the, the language of visual storytelling very well. I, you know, I, I speak on a podcast and I write stories on paper. Um, so when I am on vacation, I feel like I end up 
I want to take a video of something and I end up just like turning in a circle with my camera in front of my face. And I'm like, here, now I've made basically a panorama that moves. That's, this is ridiculous. Um, do you have any, do you have any tips or ideas for people to, to make their, like just their videos that they make more interesting? You should know on the side I do wedding videos. Do you so really? again, if anyone else, no. if anyone out there is interested in having me come and do their wedding, it only it only costs two million dollars. I bring my crew. So that's and a ridiculous and a ridiculous uh, move, move motion camera. Yeah, there's a, there's a motion control camera there. You guys are going to be in my movie wedding. It's not about you guys today. No, I um, I don't know. I mean, maybe just like a global a global idea. Something that was actually a threshold, I think, moment for me was I one time I had this job in my sort of when I was 27 or something where I got to work a lot with stand-up comics. And it was very exciting because I got to hear them talk about um, sort of almost the music or the rhythm of a comedy, of a joke. And things like, you know, changing inflection points or making it, you know, having it go really slow and then really fast or having it go really fast and then really just dump it at the end. And if you hear a person who's like great at telling a story, you're listening to the music and the rhythm of their voice and you can surprise someone with your voice and you can make them feel emotional if you slow, go slow. And it's kind of beautiful to hear like an amazing storyteller. And what was amazing, what was exciting to me when I sort of like got that in my mind and I would watch it night after night work is that with a camera, you can be doing that music. That's the job, I think, of a cinematic filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You can be enhancing jokes. You can be telling jokes. So if you want to tell a joke, if you're on vacation, you want to tell a, you know, some joke maybe of, you know, oh, it was raining so hard. It was like storming and raining. And oh, isn't it terrible? But this guy was just on the couch all day. You know, mm-hmm. you could do that. The, you could do that. You could show the rain. Oh, it's so terrible. It's so terrible. And then if you want to do, but this guy you could like just whip the camera over and that's mm-hmm. going to feel like what this guy, you know, even when you say it, you like, so there's ways to replicate even the, your language or the way that you talk, the cadence of speech visually. And uh-huh. that's a much more exciting, I think, way to watch something. I feel like I've seen that even on like Vine videos. There's that kind of thing where like, because I feel like Vine is really a, a medium for humor in a lot of cases. Yeah. And people do these Vine videos and sometimes it's, yeah, it's just, it's like the unexpected cut at the end is it's clearly the, the punchline. It's just like they cut, yeah. you know, there was one, I, uh, this isn't a Vine video, but um, I had a, a friend who is a writer who wrote this story about being marooned on an island. And he is all excited because he's found this coconut and he's going to chop open this coconut and he's going to drink the coconut water and he you know keeps trying to cut it open and then at the end it's full of bugs and so like <laughs> he's just like ah but you know that that like cut at the end to show that it's full of bugs is like the punchline uh, but, it's, uh, but, it's, but i bet it's really really short because even when you say it you're like there's a setup and he's on the thing and he's on an island blah, 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 but it's full of bugs right like, <laughs> yeah you, you even like you even say it really fast so mm-hmm. Some of the fun of like designing a film or you know whatever kind of shot list or a storyboard, but when you're dreaming up the way the movie is going to be told visually, because it's not a play, it's not a sketch comedy show, is to do exactly that: is to watch the way that when you tell the story to someone, when you sit at a restaurant and tell the story, like how are you telling it, and then how can you figure out an interesting way to do that with visuals that maybe you haven't seen before? That's the thing: is it's like how can you do something that's unprocessed imagery you haven't just seen a million times in movies mm-hmm. and and that's that's what booby trap is and i think that that's 
as a movie lover, that's what I'd love to see more in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember being a kid and going to see movies and being like, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing ever. I want to rip that off. Or, like, how would they do that? Uh-huh. You know, uh, I think if there's kids out there that want to, you know, that are shooting movies or, like, are interested in that kind of stuff, that would be the goal, I think, is to try to find something modern, um, a modern way to do some of these things. So uh, what, uh, what's, what's next for you, do you think, now that, you're, now that your masterpiece is out? Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, well, I'm going to go get a brisket sandwich and the JFK, and then I'm going to get on an airplane, <laughs> and hopefully they have internet so I can tumble back into Twitter. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I, am, um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm going to make a television show. When I come back, uh, when I get back to L.A., the first thing I'm doing is I'm um, going back in and shooting a television show that I wrote with my best friend, whose name is Matthew Fogel. Um, and it's about uh, sensitive modern men, and it's called Pussies. And that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, true. It's a comedy. It's like a millennial Seinfeld, and the lead characters are named Tatra, Schultz, and Matt Vogel. <laughs> although we don't, although we don't play ourselves, but all of this is actually true and really happening. And there will also be motion control stuff in this TV show. We're trying to be disruptive to culture and a little bit to the aesthetic of television shows. That so, sounds so fun. I will watch that. Yeah, millennial men. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so cool. That's so cool. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, listeners, everybody, go check out The Final Girls. It is such a cool movie. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's a lot. It reminded me of Cabin in the Woods a little bit, um, which I think is a huge compliment because I, I like that. Cabin, it's like Cabin in the Woods. It's like Back to the Future. It's like Pleasantville. It's like all your favorite movies. <laughs> it's like and any name any movie that's your favorite. It's just like that. Yeah, do you guys like Moonstruck? It's just like Moonstruck. <laughs> This episode of The Most Useful Podcast Ever is brought to you by Braintree. Are you a mobile app developer who wants people to pay to see all the cool videos you produced using tips from today's guest? Try Braintree. It's the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless and magical, kind of like a really good YouTube video of the time you caught a marlin on a surfboard. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support, plus fast payouts, means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. No matter how you want your customers to pay for your videos, Braintree can help. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, credit cards, and more across all platforms. It also has superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com useful. That's braintreepayments.com useful. We're back in the Popular Mechanics Workshop this week for our testing table where we have Cameron Johnson, our editorial assistant, who has a food sniffer that he's been using to test rotten meat. Hi. Uh, we also have Alex George, our tech editor, who has a 121C aileron skateboard that is has something to do with NASA, I believe. Yeah, that's, yeah, in carbon fiber. And we also have a lot of booze because I have been testing a Venturi Spirit 
aerator, which is supposed to do the same thing as a red wine aerator, but for booze. Um, and we're all going to start off this testing table by drinking. I hope you guys are excited. I have some booze here that is pretty great. It's uh, from Jefferson's Reserve, which I love Jefferson's Reserve. It is the Groth Cask Finish Bourbon, which uh, means it's made like a traditional bourbon, but then it is aged uh, after that for, I believe, nine months in um, Cabernet Sauvignon barrels, which previously had Cabernet Sauvignon in them and then do not. Um, so we're going to test that, we're going to taste it, and then we're going to run it through this Venturi Spirit Aerator, which our research director earlier told me looks like a Superman crystal, and I think... It does. It totally I, does. Right? I think it looks like something that I should have to throw into a lake so that I don't blow up the entire city of New York right now. So here, I'm going to just take out a cup. We already all have cups of this booze, but I'm going to run this through the through the aerator. Now, what is the claim of the aerator? So the claim of the aerator, yeah, it's like a, it's like a, you know how you want to um, decant wine, red wine before you drink it. It's supposed to, you basically, it opens up the flavors, it changes what you're tasting, um, and so, it does that by by oxygenating the wine. And so the, these people originally made a wine aerator, and so then what they decided that they were going to make a spirits aerator as well. Um, and so this is supposed to do the same thing for whiskey, and I don't, well, for any sort of um, liquor. I, they don't really recommend it for vodka, but I think they recommend it for, they said scotch, cognac, tequila, which we have. Oh, they do recommend it for vodka. So I don't know what it would do for vodka, but, um, you know, uh, certain liquors that have flavors. So uh, is it the equivalent of like the thing that you put in the actual bottle of red wine that has like a spout and you pour it out and it... Um, well, yeah, I mean, the thing is that you... Yeah, it's... What Instead it, of actually you're, putting like, it you in can, decanter... You can see how it works right now. Yeah, if you put it in a decanter... You have to wait. You have to wait. But this is this is the sort of thing where it basically yeah. creates oxygen. Yeah, I think so I like, have one of those. If I press aerators. this button, which is like... it's a There's a little button on the side of it, and if I press that, what it's going to do is lift up this other metal item inside. It works by magnetism. <laughs> it makes the best noise ever. <laughs> that was amazing. I'm fully skeptical in this. Uh, the one thing I remember from a spirits tasting <laughs> that I did was he said, when you, ta when you get these, you're going to be really tempted to do the glass swirling thing that you do with wine. He said, don't do that. You don't want air in it? Apparently, I... There must be something behind it that I'm overlooking, but... Okay. Our, here's what we're going to do. Our producer is going to mix up the glasses. He's going to mark one of them, the aerated one, and then... And then leave the other one. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're gonna start with Alex, who is looking away. When you've got a you've got a cup now, so take a sip. All right. Don't look at the glass. <laughs> All right. That's this is, no this delicious is, as expected. Super slight difference. I think the first one was aerated. We'll note that, and our producer will will let us know if he's correct later. Okay. Why Why do you think that it What did you think tasted different about it? Slightly less of the kind of corny burn that you get from uh, from whiskey on the first one. Okay. All right. Now it I'm going to be purely psychosomatic. I'm, I'm going to do it. Okay. Okay. That's good. Everyone's going to be like, this is, well, this one's good. I guess I'm, I'm glad we're doing this uh, first and not after having several beers or we'd never know the difference. The first one was aerated. <clears throat> and... And part, I think that that's because it's warmer. Uh, it actually, it like, it made it a little warmer, I think, because um, oh. yeah, it, the first one tastes well. It's, it tastes sharper, or sorry, the um, the one that I be believe is uh, is aerated tastes warmer and a little bit less sharp. Okay, Cameron's trying it now. All right. <laughs> Your face. 
Did you just shoot that whole thing? No, I did not. <sighs> I'm gonna say the first one was aerated. Okay, so our producer is gonna is gonna weigh in. Okay, I'll give you the results. You are all correct. We're all correct, it so was, you can taste the you difference. You all correctly identified the one that had been aerated and taste the difference. Interesting, because you yeah, it doesn't have as much of a in, like an intense flavor to it, like a burning to it. Yeah, it's got a little less edge. It's a little bit of a less of an edge, which I, is kind of great actually. It really is right. I mean, if you're going to drink something straight, I bet especially if you were going to try a rye or something that's pretty sharp. Yeah. Um, yeah, or, or high proof maybe. Although I don't know why, you know, I don't know why you're drinking like hundred proof rye straight, but you know, Hey, go for it, go for it. But, um, well that's, yeah, that's cool. I actually, I, I kind of like it. Um, and these retail for about, uh, 20 to $30, I think. So they're, they're actually not that expensive. Let's move on to your skateboard, which is over here. Um, it looks like it has square wheels. This is like the craziest looking skateboard I've ever seen. Um, how did, where did it come from? So the skateboard, the wheels are a completely separate story. So the skateboard is a kid who went to a USC rocket lab, basically. Freshman in the rocket lab saw that there was all this carbon fiber be, like being left behind because they're, you know, they're building rocket bodies out of it. And so we used it all, built a press the summer between freshman and sophomore year that could cure carbon fiber, and he pressed them into skateboard decks. So the name 121-121C, 121 degrees Celsius, that's the temperature at which the epoxy on carbon fiber cures. That's basically how hot you have to get something. It's like 250 degrees Fahrenheit. That's how hot you have to get it to actually bend it. Um, But yeah, so each board is like five pounds of extra carbon fiber, just like floor sweepings from this rocket lab. Uh, And the idea is that it's just basically a skateboard deck with that. It's pretty much indestructible. It's actually bulletproof. So Wait, so if if you're like a really serious skateboarder in a skateboarding gang... This is the best skateboard you could possibly buy. Funny thing is, I asked a guy who knew a lot about skateboards more than I do. And so most skateboards are these, you know, they're wood decks, right? You see, if you look at them on the side really close, it's multiple layers of it. If you ever watch like a skateboarding video, guys are going off really high jumps and like landing in positions that should like be breaking their ankle and everything. Skateboard manufacturers, the wood ones, they're meant to break at a very specific weight. Or not weight, but energy. But like, so... Rather than breaking your ankle, you'd actually break the oh, because it'll because it'll bend, sense. right? With this, it's the resistance is more than bone, and there's actually like so skateboard manufacturers make them very specifically to fracture less, you know, under less force than a bone, so it'll actually cushion. This one is pretty much indestructible, so it's really only for kind of going downhill or anything like that. So it's right. kind of a it's an interesting twist on it. But the idea is it's indestructible. It's made of carbon fiber. It looks awesome. Right. Well, it's kind of like how what like tall buildings they make them earthquake proof, and what they do is they make them just shift yeah. so that they'll move with the earth. Because if it's, if you're too rigid, you'll just break. Well, yeah, right. that skateboard is also it's it's built in the, the shape of a more of a riding board than an actual trick board. Anyway, yeah, so. totally. It's got a tail and all that stuff, yeah. but. Uh, it's pretty. It's cool. It's indestructible. So if you stand on it, it can bend. It'll bend down to like a really deep U shape. Like you ever seen videos of Boeing 747s where they take the wings and they bend them a whole lot? Mm-hmm. It should not look like that. It kind of looks like that. Uh, and then there's all these uh, wheels too that are really. They're. I got them out of the box. I thought they were actually like melted. They look like they're square. They look square. They look, yeah, it's they crazy. look misshapen. Yeah. The, all right, so there's this company called Shark Wheels. They make them out in California. Every part of them is made out there. And the rest of the board is, too. It's all made in California. The wheels are square, so they if you laid them out flat, they'd have, like, a zigzag pattern. The guy explained to me, it, and there's three grooves in them. The guy explained it to me as, if you ever go over a speed bump, you kind of take it at an angle, and it's less severe in the car. Mm-hmm. See what I'm talking about? Like, mm-hmm. so here's the speed bump. Rather than going straight perpendicular to it, you kind of go to the side like yeah. that. By having it as a zigzag pattern, if there's a rock underneath it, 
it can go over it more easily that way. Oh. So it's constantly going at that speed. And then there are the grooves in there to have less surface area than a regular flat skateboard wheel, which they say translates to less rolling resistance uh, and you go faster. Cool. So it's, I don't know if so it's this way, and this was designed by the same people, or was this a, this is a different company? Completely separate. They sent okay. over the deck and uh, the truck and you know the carbon fiber skateboard, and they just happen to have these wheels on there. Mm-hmm. And so, they're, so are they completely separate? Story. So they're not partnered together. You can actually change decide what wheels you want. Yeah, totally. But the, I, the wheels are actually more kind of more interesting. Like the deck makes sense, and you know, why not make something out of carbon fiber because it looks yeah. awesome. Uh, but the wheels are really interesting. It's just this kind of basic. This guy was reconsidering what the physics would be, and. Uh, Making it base. If you've ever like run down a skateboard and caught a rock underneath one, and it's basically like you just have the rug pulled out underneath yeah. you, right? And it actually kind of works. A little bit I've ridden it. There's it goes right over gravel and stuff that would normally just trip you up entirely. So the deck alone is two hundred and seventy-five bucks. It's gonna last forever though. Uh, again, with the caveat of uh, potential for injury if you take it on jumps and stuff like that. But uh, it's cool. It's got a space pattern on the bottom. You dig NASA stuff like that, it's, <laughs> it kind of appeals to that. I have a hard time not loving it. Yeah, cool. Um, and then we have Cameron Johnson. Uh, what is this food sniffer that you have been using? And why is your refrigerator full of rotten meat? Full disclosure, I had no rotten meat before I was trying this out. You thought I did, which I did is why ass- you gave it to me. I did assume that you had. So it's, it's this thing called the food sniffer, and it's this handheld device that pairs via Bluetooth to your phone, there's an app that comes with it. And if you open up a, in your fridge and you see that you have some some raw chicken, some raw beef, uh, pork, or fish, and you're not sure how old it is and you're not sure if you can still eat it, you can take this device and you click a button right next to it and it'll analyze the, uh, the vapors that come off of the meat and it will tell you whether it is uh, good to eat or if it's spoiled. Do you know what uh, what vapors, like what actual chemicals it's testing? Uh, I do not. You do not. Um, will it work on Will it work on meats that have already been cooked? No, it's raw, all raw. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder. Uh, yeah, I wonder what exactly it's testing. That's yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so it shows up on. What is what happens when you do it? What first they they recommend is that you put it. You put the meat under uh, a cover, like a, like another plate or some Tupperware, so you can trap. The, uh, the fumes in first so okay. they have more of a concentration and then you press the button and on the uh, app screen it says it's like a loading bar and then it'll say fresh which means if you can eat it raw so if it's like sashimi uh, or cook well if it's chicken or pork or something that you actually need so it's cook. never going to tell you the chicken is fresh no it'll always say cook well uh-huh. a- or it will say spoiled which means to throw it away okay except it costs Around one hundred and thirty dollars, so that's that's kind of a Ooh, big that's, up, a that's a big upfront investment for, yeah. depending on if you're a wasteful food person. So what happened when you tried it on the food that you tried it on? It, uh, I, I had it in packaging still, so I didn't have to cover it, and then I just opened a little slice and stuck it in, and it took about three four seconds, mm-hmm. and then it just said cook well, which I misinterpreted to mean that it was almost going bad. So I threw out. And how how old was it? Uh, less than a week. But a week. Oh, so less than a week still in packaging. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I would cook that. Yeah, I probably should have. <laughs> um, uh, that first bite scares the hell out of you, though. <laughs> right, like, right. It's like, you pour the milk, and it's, it's lumpy or not? Yeah. Uh, and then the I next mean, 30 minutes, you're like, all right, I feel no, okay. f- no food poisoning. Um, so just to wrap up, would you, Cameron, uh, would you buy this if you had the money? I'm not certain. 
No. Uh, that sounds like a no. It's a it's a it's a, it's a big in, it's a big investment. If someone was gifted, if I was gifted it, I would definitely use it. Sure. But I don't think I would pay the money for it. Okay. So you'll use this one. Yes. Okay. If you give it back to me. <laughs> if I give it back to you, um, I would. I, you know what? I came in here fully expecting to not like this Venturi Spirit aerator. I really thought it was going to be stupid and not. Um, not make that much of a difference. But the fact that we could all tell and all kind of liked it, I think the noise it makes is kind of stupid. But, yeah. Uh, but I would I would buy it for, for like 20 bucks, 30 bucks. I think that it's um, totally a worthwhile thing if you're trying to get somebody else into like trying and drinking whiskey. And then Alex George, um, are, are you a big what? trick doer? Would you buy the skateboard? That, that's what the kids call it these days. Trick what? doer. Trick yeah. doing? I don't know. Tony Hawk's Tony Hawk's trick doer eight. <laughs> Clearly, I've ridden a skateboard like twice in my life. Uh, uh, no, I'm not, but I love riding around Central Park. And, uh, t- you know, if you go down hills, that part is fun. I don't know if I'd buy this. I'm still, I, as much as I love like progress, I love people trying really wild stuff. When there's something that's kind of that works and that's the way it's made, like the wood decks, I kind of, that makes sense to me. This seems, it's a little bit more of a novelty. I lo- carbon fiber looks awesome. I'll buy almost anything that looks carbon fiber, but, um, it's, I don't know if it's as much a function as it is a novelty. Right. Okay. So if you're obsessed with space or you know someone who's obsessed with space or likes these kinds of things. Makes sense great, that great way. Great gift. Cool. Um, well, thanks guys for joining me. And I guess we should probably drink more whiskey, huh? Let's do it. Yeah. Experiment. So that's our show. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. If you want to read more about filmmaking, The Final Girls, and Todd Strauss-Schulson, check out our website, popularmechanics.com podcasts. And by the way, if you didn't already know, Popular Mechanics has another podcast called How Your World Works. It comes out on the weeks that we're off, so if you're ever waiting for an episode, you can go to our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcasts, or you can go directly to iTunes and look up How Your World Works. At popularmechanics.com slash podcasts, you can also subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.